Morning, everybody. I'd like for you to uh, look at, <clears throat> look with me at a portion of Scripture from the book of the prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel, the 37th chapter. A little bit of background. I think we, we've all heard of the Babylonian captivity when after some centuries, really, of drifting from God, resisting God, rebelling against God, God finally put into action what he had threatened for a long time, and that was to bring the Babylonians, the then ruling power um, really on earth, and the great king Nebuchadnezzar. And God said to Jerusalem, to Judea, I'm going to bring him as punishment on you if you don't turn around. Well, they didn't, and so God brought the Chaldeans, uh, the Babylonians, and in several raids carried people off. Now we talk, we think mostly of the final catastrophic crushing of Jerusalem where they beat down the wall, they burned the entire place, they burned the temple of the Lord, they burned the king's palaces, they absolutely wrecked the place. But that wasn't the first Babylonian captivity. Some years before, there, were, there was a siege. The people capitulated at least to dethrone, let Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, dethrone the current king named Jeconiah and haul off some of the top officials and so forth. Ezekiel was carried away in that first captivity. Now, the city wasn't ruined. Nothing was burned. They had to pay taxes to Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar set up the brother of Jeconiah, Zedekiah, to be the new king. And Zedekiah promised, yeah, I'll pay you your taxes and we'll knuckle under to you. We'll, we'll put our neck under you. And he did for about eight years, nine years. Then Zedekiah... Um, rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar, quit paying the tribute money, and meanwhile, that is the period of time when Jeremiah was doing his prophesying. Jeremiah was in Jerusalem and prophesying that Babylon would conquer them, stop fighting them. You're not going to win. Meanwhile, in Babylon... Ezekiel is prophesying, and he references um, Jeremiah. Daniel, the book of Daniel, references Jeremiah. So in different places, one in captivity and two in Jerusalem, which is about to be completely um, laid low, God's speaking to these people, trying to get them to listen. So Ezekiel now 
is already in captivity and the people there are more disheartened than the people in Jerusalem who still hold out vain hope that Nebuchadnezzar will finally leave them and he won't flatten Jerusalem. Jeremiah said, You're, you, can't, you can't beat back what God says. He said, I'm going to burn this place. And he did. Ezekiel's ministry is a bit different then because the people in, in Babylon already are discouraged. They've lost hope. They figure there's no way that they're ever, ever going to be restored. And so we have the 37th chapter, a vision that the Lord brought to Ezekiel's mind. Um, this is a spiritual vision, and it's symbolic. The symbolism is in this great, huge valley filled with dry bones. And one of the greatest questions, I think, in the Scripture, God puts to Ezekiel. Ezekiel, can these dry bones, which are very many and very dry, can they live again? That's the great question that he puts here. So we'll read beginning in verse 1 and read through verse 14. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones, and he led me around among them. And behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. In other words, they'd been there an awful long time. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied there was a sound, and behold a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them. Flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them. But there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath. Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. <clears throat> then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up, our hope is lost, we are indeed cut off. 
Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and raise you from your graves. And I will put my spirit within you. You shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. Now, some thoughts that I want us to look at on this. We're dealing here, of course, with a physical illustration meant to enlighten us on a spiritual condition. Without God, without His presence in our hearts, which He created us to house, He created us as a dwelling place, our hearts, for Him, His Spirit. We lost that. We lost that in the garden when Adam and Eve departed from God, disobeyed Him. We lost that presence, and we died. And remember, God both promised, if you want to call it a promise and a threat. If you eat of the fruit of the tree, I told you to leave alone. In other words, and technically, the fruit of the tree, that's incidental. The issue is they disobeyed what God told them to do. He said, don't do that. And so they said, well, we're going to do it. So it doesn't matter whether it's a tree. It doesn't make, make any difference. It, the issue is, I know the will of God. I choose to strike out on my own, disobey Him, thinking I won't pay. And somehow God didn't mean what He said. Tragically, tragic doesn't even catch the word. We lost God. Our hearts then are empty. We're purposeless. We wander. We, we, we live, but we're dead. Spiritually, we're dead to God. Our great creator, we don't know. I don't know if many of you have seen, it's been in the news quite a bit, this new telescope they've got pushing further out into space. It's supposed to make the Hubble um, telegraph obsolete. And the pictures, the pictures are just, well, it reminds you of Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The multicolored, just billions of stars. It, it's just fascinating. And I read in an article about it that the scientists that are the very first ones to get to look through it take pictures, and they don't have very many yet. They're just trying it out to see if it works. They are astounded with it and sure that they're going to be able to find the origin of the Big Bang. You understand what I mean? You look at that and you eliminate God. 
the normal and right response should be to drop to our knees. The scripture says, God made all of the hosts, the armies of the heavens with the breath of his mouth. He, he didn't form every little planet. He didn't, you know, strike a match and light the sun. He just set it. Never even got out of his chair. He just said, let there be. That's our God. How pathetic that we, we can see his handiwork and not see him. That's the human condition because God is not in our hearts. And so we're blind. We can look straight at the truth. We don't even see it. That was the condition with Israel. And they were without hope. They couldn't believe that these dry bones could live. They said our hope is gone, we're cut off, we're doomed, there's no hope for us. Technically they're right. Without God there is no hope. Yet they forgot not only God's power, but God's infinite goodness, mercy, kindness, that though we've rebelled, He loves us. He loves us. He strikes out after us to find us, to hunt us down, to confront us, to call us, to convict us, to promise us, to exhort us. Return to me from whom you have deeply revolted, he told Israel, and I'll heal you. Here in the middle of this vision, he says to the people of Israel who have now been at least seven, eight, nine years in captivity, and they've heard word that Nebuchadnezzar's on his way to really flatten things. And so they have no hope at all. We're done. Yet here's God telling them, I'll put you back in your land. Wow, in the world, how, how can that be? How can he make these dry bones live again? It's hopeless. Nothing's hopeless with God. He can make the dry bones of our lives and the deadness of our hearts alive. He said, I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. I mentioned that Jeremiah was over in Jerusalem at the, about the same time, prophesying to the people of Israel, telling them essentially the same thing that Ezekiel was telling them. Jeremiah 32, you ought to read that chapter. It's a great chapter. Jeremiah, they are, he's been preaching the word of God that this city is done. And he said, I don't care. I don't care what you do militarily. You're finished. You're not going to defeat the Chaldeans. They have surrounded the city. We're under siege. We're in a famine. You're not going to win. Zedekiah the king 
said to Jeremiah, you are a traitor. You are teaching and preaching to the soldiers that are trying to get ready for the break through the wall that is going to happen. You're disheartening them. You're loosening, it says, and weakening their hands. And you, you, you are a traitor to Israel. So he threw Jeremiah into the prison dungeon of the king's court. And he's down there. Remember Jeremiah, I won't get too far off, but Jeremiah never had anybody ever listen to him. He preached for 50 years, roughly. The only person that there's any evidence that he ever listened to him was his Barak, his secretary, who wrote down what he said. That's it. <laughs> there are times when I think, man, Lord, there's nothing going on. You preach, people don't get right with God. They don't listen. Um, all God has to do, I think, with any of us who start thinking that way is Jeremiah. <laughs> that settles it. So Jeremiah's in jail, and Zedekiah, everyone wants to kill him. Zedekiah was a weakling, but he didn't have the courage. He didn't have the courage to stand up for Jeremiah, but he didn't have the courage to kill him because he, he was just a weakling, but he did believe Jeremiah's probably telling us the truth, but, you know, I'm being pressured here. I'm caught. And then God sends to Jeremiah a message. He said, your cousin's going to come to you, and he's going to tell you that you need to buy a field near our hometown of Anathoth, and you need to be the owner of it. You're the next of kin. Somebody's passed away, and that inheritance is you're the next one. You need to buy it. Jeremiah, because, because he said, God said, there's going to be lands and vineyards and fields once again. Well, Jeremiah's, he's confused. He's in a dungeon. Nobody's listening to him. He thinks he's going to die. In fact, he could die any day, be executed any day. And then God says, buy this field because we're going to have vineyards and fields and flocks again. And so Jeremiah in 32, he says, Lord, you're prophesying and I'm telling people that you're going to burn every plate, burn every house, burn the temple, burn the palace, burn everything, break the wall down, absolutely flatten this whole city that's been here for a thousand years. Then you turn around and tell me to say that we're going to have flocks again, fields again, vineyards again, and you want me to buy a field that I'm never going to get any use out of because we're done. So he calls out to God, and he does acknowledge. He never forgets this, and what we have, this is what we have to do when, we're, when things look black. He said, ah, Lord God, you have made with your great power an outstretched arm, you've made the heavens and the earth. And then about ten verses after that, God answers him. And interestingly, in the same way, he says, Jeremiah, 
I am the Lord. Is there anything too hard for me? Jeremiah had said, you made all this. There's nothing too hard for you. God answered and said, yes, I'm God. There's nothing too hard for me. So now back to Ezekiel's vision. They too had no hope. No way we're going to make it. But God said to Ezekiel, start preaching. Notice that. I'm not here plugging for, you know, my, what, status. But God chooses, he said, the foolish things to confound the wise. A monologue like we're having this morning is one of the poorest ways to teach and convey knowledge. The more people cooperate, the more people join in or see a video or whatever, those supposedly are far better ways to convey learning. This is one of the poorest ways, but God said, that's what I'm choosing. And to fix these dry bones, son of man, can these dry bones live? I don't know what we'd come up with, but we'd, first of all, we'd hire a consultant. I know that. We'd hire a consultant for a couple hundred thousand dollars. And then we'd get all kinds of committees and we'd get all, you know, we'd get planning and we'd be out five years and we'd have where we want to be in 10 years. And, and so what does God say? Here's this vast valley and it's full of bones that are very dry, been dead forever. Not a chance in the world they're going to come back. And he says, I'll tell you what we're going to do. Here's how to win this hopeless battle and bring dead bones to life. Preach. Look stupid. But not to God. That's his chosen method. I have chosen, he said, the apparent foolishness of preaching to save those that believe. So he said, Ezekiel, you preach to them. Preach to the dry bones. And what happened? It says there was a sound, a rattling. And bone became drawn to the bone it matched. And skeletons were formed. And then ligaments grew up on them. Muscle. Finally, skin covered it over. But there's a great statement here. All of this was done by God. It was done through the Spirit of God. Skeletons were rearranged, brought together. Finally, skin over them. They're recognizable people. But God said, but there's no breath in them. Here's the thought first thought I want to bring to us. Notice that that process under the preaching of the Word of God and the teaching of God's Word is a gradual process of bringing the skeleton, bringing the ligaments, bringing the muscles, bringing the skin, 
and rearranging a recognizable person. That's gradual. We're in every single time we meet, every congregation where there's ever preaching, there are people in the congregation who, if we could see them spiritually, some of them in their, their wherever their chair is, they're just an indiscriminate pile of bones. Some are sitting here with ligaments, some of the muscle structure on them yet, that's it. There's others. Skin has grown over. They're recognizable. But about all of those different groups at different stages, there's one common thing. There's no breath in them. There's no breath in them. Here's the good and the bad about spiritual light as it comes to us and as we understand it spiritually now as we begin to understand God's truth he puts the bones together we're dead spiritually but we start to get brought back together and the more we listen to the truth of God and understand what the Bible means Sinews come on us, ligaments, muscle, skin even. There is a consciousness that we have learned some things. We know some things. We understand some things spiritually that we didn't understand before. Plus, I believe, that's always accompanied by a genuine desire for God and to be right with God. We're grateful for what we've learned and our hearts are drawn to God. Here's the, that's the good, but here's the bad with the same thing. That is a very opportune time for the enemy to deceive us that we are where we ought to be, that we're right with God. We're now a Christian. I know all this. I've adapted some new habits. I go to church now that I didn't used to. I've stopped a few of the worst things I'm doing. And I'm, do, I'm quote, doing better. I'm happy for that. I, I think God is too. But the glaring cannot ignore issue is there's no breath in them. The gradual process has taken place and we've learned and we've desired and we're hungering after the things of God. Don't stop short and think I'm now a Christian. I'm not a Christian yet until this further notice when this tremendous miracle took place of rearranging all these bones, bringing them together, skins upon them, they're recognizable people, but there wasn't any breath in them.
The second time, then, God says to Ezekiel, prophesy to the breath, or the wind is really what it means. And the word wind here is the same word for spirit. In this case, the spirit of God. Prophesy to the wind. And what do we see here? Come from the four winds, O breath, breathe on these slain that they may live. I prophesied as he commanded. Breath came into them and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Notice that is not a gradual process. A gradual process precedes that. But the moment the Spirit enters my heart and makes me alive is a moment. The New Testament calls it the new birth. That is when I'm made alive. I am convinced that our enemy, who will do everything he can to keep us back from experiencing, experiencing God's Spirit bursting into my heart and the lights come on and I'm alive. Jesus said, nobody can see the kingdom of God unless you've been born of God, unless you've been born again. We are good at, I think, in a lot of human means, kind of helping people to thigh bone to hip bone to, as, as the old song said, and get ligaments and get muscles and the skin comes and we pat ourselves on the back and I'll tell you what we do. We make sure we turn that in in our annual report, you know, as people who got right with God. They got saved. How many conversions do you have? Well, uh, there's a lot of people that settle for the look of an alive person, but there's no breath in them. The question then to each of us, have we stopped short? Are we satisfied with knowledge and a genuine interest in God? We do care what God thinks. We care enough to go to church. We care enough to stay away from bad stuff and we try to order our lives right and follow our conscience. None of that is bad. Who could complain about that? But it can be fatal if we are satisfied with that and we stop short. I've been baptized. I've joined the church. I participate in this. I take the Lord's Supper. So I must be, I'm a Christian. There's no breath in them. We have an awful lot of people not as a mean statement here, but we have a lot of people in good Bible-believing churches that have been deceived to stop short. I have to have a time when I know I pass from death unto life and the breath of God, His Spirit, 
came into my heart and I was alive. Now, I know, obviously, that life within us has to be maintained. I can lose that if I turn again to wickedness. I have to maintain it. Reading, praying, walking with God, obeying Him, whatever He tells me. But I will know, I will know when that happened. I may not have the date. I may not be able to tell the month or whatever else. But I know when it happened. I find it simply unbelievable that I could experience the breath of God, His Spirit, come into my, in, into my heart assuring me of sins forgiven and registering His presence in my heart. And I know Jesus said to the disciples, you know your name is written in heaven. But I can't remember when it happened. I just don't find that believable. Again, don't mean to undercut someone's confidence. You may not know the calendar date, the day, time, and so forth. But you remember the event itself because you were there. <laughs> it happened to you. It must, it must happen to us. And it must, it must no, no matter how long ago, it still must be alive. It still must be real. I know it. There's an old hymn, He Lives, He Lives, Christ Jesus Lives. You ask me how I know He lives? He lives within my heart. And I think there's a verse somewhere in that hymn. I talk to Him. How do I know? Because God talked to me and I talked to Him this morning. He's in my heart. I talked with Him. The message I believe here on this great vision of Ezekiel is we cannot, we can't stop short. We can't be satisfied with the outward appearance and not have breath in my heart. So I just want us to let the Lord we can't really do searching of our own heart because we'll always give ourselves a clean bill of health. I mean, I don't care what we're doing. We'll use, well, I might do a few things, but I'm a good guy. That, that judgment has to be left to God. So the best prayer is, Lord, search my heart. Point out to me. And the likelihood is this. If I've not had the day, a time, when the breath of God entered my heart and made me alive. Or if I've drifted far away like Israel did. They once knew God, but they walked away from Him. If that is not alive, the chances are good He's probably already been telling us that. We've likely had that suggestion in his still small voice, come to us. Listen to it. 
Let's bow our heads. And I want us to just be quiet for a moment. <clears throat> and let the Lord speak to us. And then in a moment, I want to give you an opportunity to just slip your hand up. By saying that, by doing that, you're saying, not to me, though I will be praying for whoever raises their hands and will see them. But by raising your hand, you're saying, I, I got a pretty good idea that that's where I'm at. I do have bones together, flesh on me. I have an outward form. I do care what God thinks. I want to be right with God, but I'm not sure there's breath in me, and there has to be. So I'm going to pray that God would just search us and then give you an opportunity again with no one looking around, just to slip your hand up, requesting prayer. Obviously, not that you stay in that condition, but that you move ahead and that the breath of God comes into your heart. Father in heaven, you are the heart-knowing God. You're also the only one who can be the heart-revealing God. And you are very faithful because you love us and you want, to spa you want to spare us from the wrath to come. You want to save us. So you are very faithful to tell us if there is something lacking, something that we need. So I pray, Lord, as we are quiet before you, that you'd be clear with us, that we know exactly where we're at. Now, while we're still in an attitude of prayer, I'd like to ask any of you that feel this is where you may be. There's muscles and skin, but there's no breath. I want you to just slip your hand up, leave it up long enough so that I can be sure and see it. <clears throat> Anybody feel that's where the Holy Spirit's telling them they're at? Thank you. Bless your hearts. Thank you. Yes. Yes. That's good. Any others? Yes. I can, yes, I see those. You can put them down. Any others? Want to slip your hand up? Before we dismiss with prayer, the one last thing I want to ask you to do is I think um, 
again, not placing myself too high of a position, but my job is to shepherd souls. And so if you express a need and then we don't ever get together and talk about it, we just kind of go our way, that accomplishes nothing. So would you help me, those of you that have slipped your hand up requesting prayer, um, check me with me in the, at the back door or whatever. We, we, don't, we want to follow up on it. I want to get a time that I can visit with you um, so that we can get to where God wants you to be. Father in heaven, as my voice enters into this sanctuary, I pray, Lord, that they don't listen to me, those that have raised their hands this morning, but they're still listening to you. You've prompted their hearts this morning, Lord, to confess to you that there is a need that needs met. And since you're the one that's prompted them, I know you'll provide what they need. Help them to allow you to do that work in their hearts. Provide whatever is needed. Meet them where they need met, Lord, and help them along the way so they would know with confidence that the breath of life has entered them and that they walk for you and with you and by your grace. And for all of us this morning in this room, Lord, that have had that experience that our pastor talked to us about, that we know we've been like Paul on the road to Damascus and we've had that encounter with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. May we always remember that encounter and may we always, each moment of each day, make decisions based on that moment that we live by your grace and we live to your glory because we've had that encounter with you, Lord. That should change us. That should uh, modify our behavior in a way that brings you glory. So no matter what season we're in, as our pastor has taught us this morning, I know you are a God who is faithful to meet with us and to help us and to grow us and to minister to our hearts so that we can walk with you in a way that is honoring you. So, Father, we're grateful for the time together this morning. Grateful that your Holy Spirit has moved about this room and done work, done a work in people's hearts that have showed up this morning to meet with you. Prayed coming in this morning that you would speak to our hearts, and I believe you've done that. Now help us to listen. And maybe because we've had these moments, we walk out of here different, closer to you, stronger in you, bringing you glory in all that we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Love you guys. You are dismissed. Have a great day, everyone.